You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. This is the first of two episodes of The Spear, featuring Master Sergeant Earl Plumley. Listeners may know of the actions in Ghazni, Afghanistan in 2013 that led to Plumley receiving the Medal of Honor, but his career and combat experience started long before that fateful day in Afghanistan. This episode is, in a sense, his origin story. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm honored to have Master Sergeant Earl Plumley with me. Earl, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, most of our listeners will know you from events that happened in Afghanistan for which you received the Medal of Honor, but that was relatively far into your career. How did you wind up eventually becoming there, but who was Earl when you started out? Uh, so I, I grew up in western Oklahoma, um, town, well, it's not a town, a place called Merritt. Uh, the tornado blew the uh, post office down, and uh, we called it Merritt, but the uh, state of Oklahoma said it was not a town. But I grew up in a farming community, western Oklahoma. Uh, my family ran cattle, and uh, anyway, I, I always knew growing up I wanted to serve. Um, I came from a military family. Um, my dad was a, a Marine and also transitioned to the Army and was serving in the National Guard throughout my uh, uh, childhood. So I, I knew I wanted to serve. Um, and I had this family lineage of service. And uh, depending on what movie was out, that's what I was going to do. Uh, so I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot uh, desperately. You know, Tom Cruise really sold that to me. So I just knew I was going to be an F-14 pilot. Navy SEAL movie came out, and I just knew that I was going to be God. I was going to be a Navy SEAL sniper uh, back in Charlie Sheen up. And then as, we, as I you know, went through my high school uh, years. Uh, I think The Rock had come out, and I'd read a book uh, about Charles Hatchcock, and then I, I was defi- definitely going to be a Marine sniper or a, a Marine uh, reconnaissance man, and that, that was my big plan. So, I, And I, I thought I'd discovered a glitch in the system. I found out you could join the military with a GED. Uh, so my sophomore year, I was going to drop out of high school, get my GED, and uh, escape uh, farming in western Oklahoma. And if you're listening and you're on a ranch or a farm out in the Midwest, um, when they say that the military is a hard prof- profession, they're, they're talking to people from L.A. Uh, it's a nice break for us. <laughs> but uh, I went to the Marine recruiter, and, uh, and he laughed hysterically at me. Uh, they already solved that. I wasn't quite as intelligent as I thought. Um, so, he, you know, he said, hey, you, you, can't, you cannot join the military with a GED until after your, your uh, 
graduation year. So you still have to fail high school, then get a GED, and then come find me. But he told me, like, you know, the National Guard will take you right now. Um, go see them. So I did, and, and uh, they were very excited to have me. I, I joined the National Guard um, while I was in high school. Uh, had a lot of fun uh, doing my drill weekends. Uh, kept me out of trouble. At that time, I was super into uh, chasing girls and, and uh, four by four in trucks. Uh, they, I didn't chase too many girls in the National Guard, but I, I was in the 45th Infantry Division in the field artillery. I did get to go to the field and drive four by four trucks as a, a teenager in high school. You know, getting a Humvee and, and cut loose in, in Fort Seal was pretty neat. <laughs> um, but toward the end of, of that, you know, I'd always had this other other plan, more adventure. You know, nobody. Me anyway. In my dream, I did not join the military and have my grand adventure be uh, in in Beckham County, uh, sleeping in my own bed every night. And then I had two very influential mentors that uh, kind of led me on a on a, a path of enlightenment. It was the the DA of Beckham County and the sheriff uh, helped me uh, enlist in the Marine Corps. <laughs> it was their recommendation that I needed uh, more t- uh, more work and less time on my hands. So I. I uh, got given a choice to uh, hang around and, and be aggressively pursued by the DA or, or disappear into the, the Marine Corps. And uh, Marine Corps recruiter came and, and uh, took me off the DA's hands, and I, I became an infantryman in the Marine Corps and uh, never looked back. So the briar patch, so to speak, uh, I was thrown into. So the jokes about I didn't volunteer, the judge told me to do that, in your case actually proved a little bit true. Actually, uh, very true. So I, I did my security clearance investigation, and uh, I have a court document that says uh, prosecution deferred in lieu of military service. In uh, my security investigator, he's like, I've heard of this. I've never actually seen one. I didn't know that this was still a thing. Uh, but that, that is how I ended up uh, in the Marine Corps. You mentioned growing up on a farm. Yep. And how joining the military was actually a break for you. What was boot camp like for a farm kid who was a prior enlisted soldier? Um, to be honest, I mean, uh, physically, very easy. Um, I, I, uh, I still, I mean, it's still hard, and you're still learning. You're being, you're being broken in, uh, and becoming. I was becoming a marine. I was not a marine before I went to boot camp. So, there was parts of it that were hard, but uh, I remembered, uh, you know, my perception was I'm going to get there and and just have this huge physical struggle to overcome, and and uh, that wasn't my experience. So. Well, you know, I might I break a sweat, but I never really felt physically challenged uh, in boot camp. That changed, though. That was uh, just because boot camp is an entry-level thing. It's made to get you ready. It's not made uh, to turn you into this whole different person. Uh, so, you know, boot camp was, was pretty easy. I learned how to march, and I learned how to, you know, to be professional in appearance. I learned about the history of the Marine Corps. I learned the customs and courtesies. And then, uh, and then I got to the School of Infantry. And then I was challenged. <laughs> what was your MOS? Uh, so I, I, I came in as a, an open contract 03, was selected to be an 0351. And I'm dating myself because they don't, they don't have that MOS anymore. So an assaultman? I was an assaultman, yes. And what's the job of an assaultman? Uh, we are the organic anti-armor uh, and fortifications uh, for the uh, company commander. So I, I carried uh, the small D. It weighs 16.92 pounds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> statistics you still remember, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Marine Corps is good at teaching you things. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if you're, if you've never, uh, served in an infantry, uh, company, it's, it's a, it's a rocket launcher. And so I, I carried a rocket launcher over every, uh, hill 
in uh, in Hawaii with First Battalion, Third Marines. When when was this? So I I uh, joined the National Guard in 1998, and then uh, spent two years there. And then after I graduated high school, I uh, joined the the Marine Corps. So in 2000, into the summer of 2000, I, I showed up in uh, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. So this is still the peacetime Marine Corps, and you know the nation's not at war yet. The nation's not at war. Uh, all the Vietnam vets are gone. Um, you might bump into a, a guy that did uh, the Persian Gulf uh, uh, War in, in '91, but they're they're a rarity. Uh, so you know it's it's um, we're taking our training seriously, uh, but not deathly so, um, because it's not you know the the. The tales of combat are, are far behind us, and, and there's no foreseeable war in the future. You know, when I came in, we were we were training to fight the Russians still, and uh, um, my my training looked a lot like what's what's occurring in Ukraine right now. I dug I dug eight million holes, and then we'd we'd fill them in, hike 20 miles in the middle of the night, and and dig more holes because um, we were you know preparing for that high density conflict. The events of 9-11 happened, and where did your career take you from there? So I was forward deployed on a Marine Corps uh, unit deployment program. Um, so you're, you're forward deployed in Okinawa um, as a battalion. And, uh, you know, we were all doing what we do in the infantry. We're up drinking beer uh, late at night. You know, I'm still dating myself. Uh, we had one TV in a, in a recreational room, and uh, I was drinking beer in my room. And I, I started hearing, you know, hooting and hollering down there. Uh, so I, I went down to see what's going on, and uh, and we had the news on. It was morning on the east coast of the United States, and, uh, um, I, you know, an aircraft had flown into the tower, and, and we were all, you know, I still remember sitting there going from what an, what an incredible um, mishap. Like, how did an airliner hit the hit the tower? And we're trying to figure it out, and then another one hit it. And, and you know, and then instantly I, I remember, like, well, that's intentional. Um and uh, as the, the night, you know, we, none of us went to bed that night. And then the Pentagon get hit, got hit. Um, and we're all realizing that, that the nation was under attack. And then the next morning, uh, we had all of our equipment in the parking lot because um, we just knew we were going to war. What changed in Okinawa? What changed in 1-3? So in 1-3, we went from our, you know, doing our training, shooting our training track. We had all these um, uh, events and um, we got issued ammunition uh, and sent out, and we had a, a roving uh, or a rotating guard. We guarded the front gates, uh, got manned with, with, um, with machine guns and about a squad at every gate. And then uh, also we took the, uh, we had a rotating squad that would, would patrol around the uh, perimeter of, of Camp Hansen. We, we cut all the brush back, you know, because we didn't know who the enemy was still. So we're, we're prepping the fire base uh, like it's Vietnam and, and clearing back our, our fields of fire in, in Camp Hansen. Uh, funny now, but, you know, we took it very seriously. So we were out there with our e-tools, you know, chopping the fence back, looking for signs that somebody had infiltrated the, the post, and, and uh, which wasn't very fun. Uh, that was my first taste of what actual uh, war footing looked like. So we'd, I'd get about five or six hours of sleep, and then I had other tasks outside of that, living in my uniform. Uh, we had a QRF, so if you, you slept when you were on QRF, and it was exhausting. But that was kind of my, uh, my uh, warm start for, for what, uh, being in the in the military during time of war was the warm start eventually leads to um, so I, I, I said I never I never got to deploy to real what I considered in my mind as a private real combat with first battalion third marines uh, we had 
an early deployment. And uh, so, you know, I'm doing all this um, guarding Camp Hansen, and I get read off of a list, <clears throat> and I get deployed with a, a, a small contingent of my company, gets broken off and sent to the Middle East. And uh, naively, I'm like, yep, we're going, we're, you know, we're going in for the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, I didn't realize that the Marine Corps doesn't just grab a um, plussed up rifle platoon as the key uh, key piece for any invasion. Um, but they did need the Straits of Hormuz to be secured for the USNS support vessels, and I was a part of that security de- detachment. So I, they would fly us around, and any time a, a naval vessel, either a military or civilian, would come into the, the, uh, the theater, there was a detachment of Marines on there to, uh, to guard it while it was in port, and then especially to the Straits of Hormuz because the, uh, the Iranians instantly started making themselves a nuisance as we, we did our buildup um, in the Middle East. Afghanistan gets invaded. I was crushed because you know, I'm guarding a ship at sea and, and shooting um, you know, floating trash, and I'm watching when we do get um, the news, I'm watching the invasion of uh, Afghanistan uh, from a ship at sea that's, that's a giant refrigerator. You're a PFC at this point, a Lance Corporal. Uh, Lance Corporal. So I was a, I was an E3, uh, in charge of my left boot and right boot, and uh, you know, and all I do is is guard and be ever watchful and alert. Eventually, that shipborne rotation comes to a conclusion. What happens next? So that ends. We come back, and we did, we got uh, all of our seniors left. I became a senior in uh, in my. Uh, company, you know, and I made corporal, and um, we get new guys, and we start training up, and then we uh, we get our next deployment, and uh, it's a you know missions top secret destination unknown, and I'm very excited, great, and I ended up guarding the uh, Chow Hall uh, at the Jasotif P, the Joint Special Operations Task Force in the Philippines, has a security issue as they grow their footprint, and the, the special operations is doing you know their uh, their efforts in the southern Philippines, they needed security, and Marines are great at guarding things. So I get called in, and I am checking IDs at the chow hall and keeping the Green Berets from stealing all the chocolate milk because it's incredibly valuable uh, on the market in the southern Philippines. So your experience and exposure to special forces or special operations before this had been Charlie Sheen and Navy SEALs and then the reconnaissance Marines in the Rock, and now you're guarding a chow hall. Yep. And, I, and we hate them because we're Marines. You know, I polished uh, all sides of my boots uh, back then. And then these guys would come in, uh, uniforms, no starch, hasn't been pressed. Guy didn't even shave this morning before before coming to the breakfast chow. Uh, wearing sunglasses like an animal. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't think much of them uh, because uh, obviously they weren't as disciplined as us. And, uh, and if you weren't disciplined as an infantry Marine, uh, you were just a, you know, you were just not useful, not a, not a thing. So I remember my first exposure, you know, I didn't ever see them operationally. I saw them at the chow hall and I was like, gross, hey, these guys are stupid. And they're all older than me, you know, um, like, cause all, most green berets are, are 30 plus E7. So they've all got a little bit of a waste on them. And here I am. Like they don't PT enough, you know, like yeah. Now looking back, I'm like, of course you have a flat stomach. You're 20 years old. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I wasn't that impressed, and and also, you know, they were still they were going out, doing things, and they're not even as good as I am, and I'm stuck here guarding the chow hall. So I, I hated it. That deployment comes to an end. 
you at some point they'll have to have the realization of like this isn't what I signed up to do or this the wars are going on and I'm yeah. missing them. So you know, and this is you know, I watched the invasion of uh, Iraq, you know, guarding the Chow Hall in the Southern Philippines, and I'm I'm like ready to you know pull my teeth out. And also, I'm not able. I had this thing I wanted to be a force recon marine. And I'm not able to pursue those dreams because I keep get keep doing these incredibly important deployments. And and while I have no doubt at this point in my career that those were important and necessary, um, you know, Lance Corporal Plumley was not pumped for any of those any of those missions. Uh, even though it, you know, I, I facilitated all the uh, special operations in the southern Philippines, you know, that somebody had to guard the gate in the Chow Hall, and, I, and it was me. I just didn't like it. <laughs> um, so you know, they come back. And uh, I apply for a program, RMAT. Uh, I get accepted into it, and uh, I'm going to be a uh, I'm going to be a ripper for the Fourth Force Reconnaissance in Hawaii. And I, I still remember I got called in by my uh, platoon sergeant and platoon commander, and they said, "Hey, don't leave. You need to deploy with us one more time." And uh, I was like, "Why? Like we can't tell you it's classified." And I was like, "Yeah." Garden the ships was classified. Garden the Desoto P was classified. You know, fool me once, uh, shame on you. But like, I'm not letting you guys get me again. Um, so I left and uh, got a got a seat in ARS. To, school is closed now, but it's it's like Ranger School and Buds got married, and then uh, you're being raised in a, a a terrible household as they get divorced. Um, That's the amphibious reconnaissance school. Yep. Okay. And uh, so I'm getting crushed every day, and I. Uh, I'm watching my battalion uh, in Fallujah. So my 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, left without me and went to Iraq and took part in Operation Phantom Fury, and uh, I wasn't there. And that was uh, awful. It's it's one thing to watch, you know, other people you don't know and other units, um, you know, do these invasions. But I'm like, I was just there. Uh, I re- I'm watching people I know on the news um, in in Fallujah. And I'm not a part of it, and it was it was uh, gut wrenching for me. If I if I could have quit ARS and then been sent back to First Battalion, Third Marines, that that I would have done it. Uh, but there was no way that that was going to happen. And uh, so I stayed the course, um, finished uh, finished that training, and, and uh, ultimately became a uh, 0321 and uh, and uh, served as a Force Reconnaissance Marine. So in Fourth Force, a variety of mission sets, but deployments are still happening. Yes. So. Um, you know, those, you know, the, the, when I actually joined, there was nobody in the unit, they were deployed and I was like, cool. And, uh, become, become a force recon Marine and do some training, train at my platoon. And I'm not there very long. Um, and we get the warning order that we're going to be, uh, give up, uh, a platoon for a second force reconnaissance. And I'm just dancing in the street, you know, super happy. Cause at this point I've, I've, uh, attended, um, uh, the amphibious reconnaissance school, seer school, jump school and dive school and I've, I've done a, uh, a workup, a shooter's workup uh, and got my go for, for being able to run in a, a force reconnaissance uh, stack and, uh, and I'm, on, I'm going. We're going to work with second force reconnaissance um, and that's you know a legendary unit in the Marine Corps at the time and uh, I'm, I'm getting all my wishes fulfilled. I'm finally going to get to go. And we you know go to Camp Lejeune, um, get put in, in a, a you know, pre, uh, pre, pre-deployment train up and uh, go to Iraq. Where did you go? Uh, we went to Al-Assad. So we, were, we worked everything out of Al-Assad, and we executed um, all of our direct action raids 
uh, out of Al-Assad. You're at this point a corporal or a sergeant? I'm a sergeant now. What is going through Sergeant Plumley's head when you land in Al-Assad and leave the FOB for the first time on one of these raids? Um, so my uh, our first thing is we, we did uh, supported a, uh, I think, a regimental assault on a, a village somewhere to the south and, and uh, west of Al-Assad. And uh, I was you know, so proud to be a Force Recon Marine. And, and uh, I had done training with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, but I had never seen a regiment online before. And, uh, and we did. We, we lined up and uh, kind of plowed into this city. Uh, and I was terrified, you know, because uh, I, at this point, only trained. Uh, I knew how to guard things really well. I had uh, conducted tons and tons of training, but I, I have never um, actually had a loaded weapon with a, an enemy to engage. So I, I was, um, you know, I was succumbing to some stress and uh, was very uncomfortable. The first time rounds came at you, what was your reaction? Uh, so I was a gunner on a 50 cal, and we moved into a city, and I, and I... I remember as we came in, we started hearing small arms fire and then more and more and more and uh, heavy amounts of fire, and I couldn't even tell where it was going. Uh, to, to me, it looked like um, people were shooting everywhere, and it was. People were shooting everywhere. Uh, an Iraqi unit was doing what we call it the Iraqi Death Blossom, and uh, they were just shooting the hell out of everything. And uh, I was terrified. Um, I, I, you know, I got down deep in the turret. I had my helmet uh, pressed into the... The spades of a 50 cal and and uh the only reason that weapon stayed functional is i was not physically strong enough to pull it apart uh i still remember having the spades and and just gripping them and, and trying to uh rip them in half um and uh, i could not uh i could not put my head up so for probably five minutes i was just kind of hyperventilating um behind that gun uh not even looking outside of the truck and uh i had a good uh good team leader uh, and he was the whole time just kind of talking me off that hill. And, uh, and he's where I kind of came up with my, my, my things I do in combat when people, because I recognize it when I see it now, is give them a small task uh, to do and, and work them off that ledge. It's just that the overwhelming um, stress and fear of being in combat for the first time. What were the tasks he gave you? Uh, he's, he's like, you know, you're your eyes up there. You have to, you have to, uh, you have to look at the vehicle still in front of us. And I'm like, look, yep, still there. You know, thinking I'm participating and now realizing that him and the driver are sitting there staring at that vehicle. But it got me to, like, you know, uh, move my body, uh, peek up. I would look, and he's like, okay, the vehicle's still behind us. And I would, you know, throw my head back and peek up, and they are. And, um, and then he, you know, eventually got me looking down these alleys as we're crossing and, and it got me comfortable and I got up on the gun and started, you know, actually being a gunner and, you know, participating in, uh, in that, in that battle. And that was, but you know, that's not how I started it. And I, I really think that a lot of people, um, that weren't as perceptive as he was, it, it, it could have been construed as cowardice. Um, and I, and I, and I see it all the time. Anybody's first gunfight that they, they need that time. And that's why, you know, a green unit has to be kind of handled with kid gloves because, you know, the first time you get shelled or, or fired at, um, you, you do freeze up and everybody has that different amount of time it takes them to, uh, to unglue from the ground and actually become a soldier. Some people it's 30 seconds, some, some people it's three days, and, and for a very small percentage of the population it just never happens. But, um, you, know, you know, I like to like help them out when I see it 
And uh, that's my, my thing is I always give somebody when they're caught in that, that tunnel vision and they're wondering why they didn't study harder so they could become a lawyer, uh, give them small tasks to make sure that they uh, can kind of go external to their body and then gradually grab more of, of reality and start dealing with it. That deployment continues. Do you continue doing direct action raids and that sense of confidence after the first? Yeah, so we, we got off really lucky. We had, you know, very highly trained. Uh, we were going after mid-level Al-Qaeda guys, you know, some high-level guys. And, and uh, um, you know, they just, they weren't, they weren't uh, as alert. They were always surprised. So I, I ripped a lot of guys out of bed in the middle of the night uh, in their underwear and uh, you know they they weren't even all the way awake before uh, before we were in the house with them, and uh, and we, when we did take contact, it was always um, disjointed, um, fleeting. A couple guys trying to get on us, but we were we were so um, you know swift and violent in the in our actions that it was really hard for the enemy to to do anything meaningful to counter us, and uh, and that came with some some confidence. You know, as we would uh, walk into these cities like you know Ramadi, uh, Fallujah. That are like just known for being, you know, bloodbaths, and we, we would walk in there, the platoon, or sometimes one or two teams, uh, sneak in in the middle of the night, grab our guy, uh, cuff his cuff his butt up, and drag him out and throw him on a helicopter, and sometimes the enemy would never do anything meaningful. Uh, we'd get signals chat that they were trying to get after us, but we were just, you know, we were, you know, executing those limited scale raids with with such precision that there was there was no gunfight, and that came with a lot of confidence. Like, you know, and, and then I went from just participating to like, I can walk point now. Uh, I'm starting to fight to be the one man in the door because I, I'm just growing as that warrior where like, uh, I, I know that I'm, that I'm better than the enemy and I want to participate um, and drive that, drive that fight. How long did that deployment last? Oh, seven months. And was it a raid every night or was it? Uh, so it was, a, you know, it, it went back and forth depending on how the, 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 uh, the, you know, the Marine commander was seeing it. So we went every night, and then uh, eventually there were some operations where uh, we, we called them, you know, uh, trophy poaching, but we would just go out and, uh, and hit, do counter IED emplacement. And, uh, and those were breaks, really, because uh, not that stressful. You're in a hide side, just waiting behind a gun, uh, waiting for a guy to come around and make the mistake of digging a hole in front of you. But it was a, it was a nice break to actually kind of um, reel you in off of, of uh, the direct action raid every night. Uh, it starts to be kind of stressful, and and the, the op tempo wears you down. And then also we had us took part in some big operations, and uh, and I was a blocking force for uh, Steel Curtain. Uh, they they flew us in in the middle of the night, and we uh, emplaced on some high ground, uh, and we were uh, you know Overwatch of the city, and then a blocking force so that the fighters weren't able to flee uh, out of the city because the Marine Corps was trying to do another Fallujah type thing where they could get a bunch of uh, insurgents in one city. And then, um, you know, crush them and eliminate them off the battlefield. And uh, that was uh, that was that was a toughie. I, I went back to my infantry days. I think we were we were in an exposed you know position in a in a fighting hole for about thirty days or so, living out of a, a patrol pack. And uh, uh, kinetically, not that not that much for us to do, uh, but just you know, living in, in a you know combat setting in a fighting hole. Uh, with not that much support was, uh, was a, a pretty, a pretty difficult. I ended up getting uh, leishmaniasis and had to get medevaced uh, out of the unit toward the end of that. While you were with Fourth Force and forward deployed with Second Force, did you have inklings that 
this was it? You were going to stay an 0321 for the rest of your life or? I, yeah, I've, I've loved it. Um, um, I, you know, it was during that time I was loving the work. Uh, I love the direct action raid piece. Um, and then we, uh, you know, we caught some guys and I, and it was, it was part of the white house's talking points. Um, and for me, you know, I, I understood that I was a cog in the machine, but when I, when I saw like, Hey, I took this guy off the battlefield and now the president is talking about it. That was, that was cool. And I fell in love with military service at that point. I'm like, I am doing things that are affecting the national policy of the United States government. And, uh, I never want to not be that guy. How many deployments did you do with, as a force recon Marine? I did two deployments as a force recon Marine. Both to the Ramadi, Al-Assad, Fallujah area? Yes. So I did the, the 05, 06 trip, and then 08, 09, uh, did another trip. How would the battlefield changed in those two years? So it went, it changed a lot. Um, and uh, so, you know, in 05, 06, there was the pre-surge. Uh, I remember driving down, uh, flying north into Al-Assad, and there was a storm coming in. And you could actually see, I think it was uranium. You could see it just exploding randomly because um, static electricity would build up and these uh, IEDs would just detonate. And then I could see, I remember watching, you could see convoys coming as we were flying. You could look out the tail of the bird and you could see them hitting IEDs. And, uh, and uranium was almost useless. It was like the, the, the surface of the moon. There were so many IEDs on it that, that you had to go like you know, 15, 20 miles an hour uh, just because every, every six, 10 feet there was a crater. And uh, the ROEs were just so loose. Um, if you, if you were within a hundred meters of a road, I think with a, with any implement that could dig, so a shovel or a pickaxe, we would just kill you. Uh, if you stopped, if you were walking down the road and you stopped, we could kill you. If, and we did our escalations of force. If, if we were out driving in a vehicle convoy and you didn't, you know, stay 300 meters away, we'd kill you. Uh, and that was fine. Pretty much everywhere you went, you you would get in. Uh, somebody would shoot at you, and you would shoot back. So if you were trying to get your combat action ribbon, it would usually take about 30 minutes after you left the gate. Um, and I just remember the SIGAX. I think there was like you know two or three thousand a week SIGAX. So if you had to read all of them, it was you'd stay up all night doing it. And then I came back in 08, um, and you know you needed tons of of different metrics to shoot a person because we had the uh, we had the armed militias that were supporting the Iraqi government, the sons of uh, sons of Iraq. So, you know, those guys were on the battlefield, and they didn't wear uniforms. So just because somebody was walking around with a PKM, you couldn't just uh, kill him. Uh, speed limits were in. Uh, we tried not to even drive uh, at night at all. If you if you fired on a vehicle, it was a huge deal at that point. In the, in the area, I just remember, I was like, why do I have to wear my helmet? Like, there's just nothing happening out here, uh, and it's so safe. But then I'm looking down at my... My new guys have never deployed at all, and they're high-stressing, um, you know, like I was on my first trip, except for it's, the, the threat's not there. But since they've never seen it, they're, they never get, like, relaxed. Uh, they're always waiting for this, this uh, the boogeyman to get them. And uh, just, you know, that we were – I thought we had won. I thought Iraq was going to be, like, this huge success story because of how stable it was uh, in, like, in that 2008, um, 2009 period. This concludes our first episode with Master Sergeant Earl Plumley. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Our next episode follows his career as he leaves the Marine Corps and joins the Special Forces.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.